now uh, into the sermon for today. So we're continuing our study through the book of 2 Corinthians. If you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab them. Um, if you don't have a Bible, grab one of the ones next to you. Um, that's not someone saving a seat. That's a Bible in case you didn't bring yours. And if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that with you. That is our gift to you. Uh, we love the Bible, and we want to give it to as many people as we can. Um, so we'll be in 2 Corinthians. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 1, verses 12 through 22 this morning. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the chapter numbers are the larger numbers. The verse numbers are the smaller ones, and that's on page 1,023 on the Bibles uh, next to you. So we just preach regularly through books of the Bible. Uh, it's one of the things that, again, we love the Bible, so we want to, within our preaching, just in essence, hold a microphone up to God and let him speak to us. So the majority of time, we're just walking chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through books of the Bible. And so we are jumping now into 2 Corinthians. He's, Paul's just finished his greeting and then kind of his um, kind of opening statements. And he's now getting into what the theme of the letter is going to be. So again, just a quick recap on who the, this is. This is the Apostle Paul writing to a church in Corinth. So 2 Corinthians, uh, this is the second letter that we have that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, to Corinthians. So that's, uh, you know, I think sometimes we can see this as a big book and these are like chapters in a book. It's important for us to remember um, that actually this was, this, what we're about to read was a letter written by a man to a church. And so it would be like if there was a, Paul was around today, he would have written a letter to the Grovians. Uh, this would have been first Grovians written here to the Grove Church. And I would have just gotten up and would have just read the letter. Um, and so this is what happened here in the church. And there was friction that existed between Paul and this church. The relationship was a little dicey. We'll get into that in just a little while. But there was a handful of things that were working against Paul. Uh, both the kind of baggage that he had in his relationship with this church as, as there was tension that was there. But then also, again, there were these kind of really talented, gifted orators that later he calls these super apostles. Kind of says it tongue in cheek. Like these are the, I'm the apostle of God that's written like half the Bible, but here are the super apostles that are coming in. They're like really good speakers. Paul wasn't a great speaker. Um, he wasn't very impressive to look at. He didn't charge money as he spoke, uh, but these other guys did. And so the church in Corinth was really fascinated with like new and big and flashy and growing. And, um, and so they loved these super apostles. And so Paul was kind of like bland and ordinary. Um, but these super apostles were incredible. And so they had this tension that existed there with Paul. And then also you had these super apostles. So there's a number of things that were working against Paul. And so we'll see here, he's going to lay out kind of the theme of his letter is to tell them, hey, I want to let you know that all the beef that you've got against me, uh, it's not because of things that I'm actually doing. And he's going to begin to explain why it is he's doing the things that he's done and how they've interpreted some things wrongly. And so he's going to lay out for them, in essence, the whole theme of 2 Corinthians. He's trying to convince them, hey, I am, in fact, an apostle. You can be proud of me because God has sent me to you. And the reason why you can be proud of me is because of what this new covenant ministry actually looks like. And that's what he lays out into the entire book of 2 Corinthians, describing what true gospel ministry looks like as opposed to what others were kind of touting in that day. And so we'll read here um, verses 12 um, through 22 and then dive in. Verse 12, indeed, this is our boast. The testimony of our conscience is that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you with godly sincerity and purity, not by human wisdom, but by God's grace. For we are writing nothing to you other than what you can read and also understand. And I hope that you will understand completely, just as you have partially understood us, that we are your reason for pride 
just as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. Now, I want to stop there, and I want to, we're going to read and kind of stop as we go along. Um, and so I want to stop there and talk through what Paul is talking about here in these first three verses. And so kind of the three things we're going to be looking at today is we'll see Paul's explaining that he has a clear conscience. He had a trip canceled. But then also, he has a faithful God. That's kind of where we're headed. So first, a clear conscience here in these first three verses. Paul is saying to them, hey, we want to write to you what you can understand. And this is kind of classic Paul. You see in verse 13, we are writing nothing to you other than what you can read and also understand. And I hope you'll understand completely. And then Paul goes and says like four really confusing things. Right? He's a great priest, classic preacher. I want, to, I want to tell you what you can understand, and let me tell you some things that are hard to understand. Um, but regardless, that's why we're going to kind of walk through this slowly. As Paul is saying here at the very beginning, hey, I want you to understand, as we've conducted ourselves with you, I have a clear conscience. And what's he mean by that? He starts in verse 12. He said, indeed, this is our boast. This is what we're taking pride in. Look at verse 12. That the testimony of our conscience is that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially toward you, with godly sincerity and purity. So what Paul is saying is Paul is saying, hey, this church in Corinth, there's kind of this faction that's saying, Paul, you've treated us wrong, man. You've wronged us. Uh, You've ignored us. You've canceled plans. You've kind of cast us aside. And Paul's saying, no, listen, let me just tell you, with my own conscience, if, I, if I've examined why I did the things I did, I can say in all good conscience, the testimony of our conscience is the way that we've conducted ourselves toward you is with godly sincerity and purity. Everything we've done has been in good conscience. As we've, we've come, everything that's happened. It's not by human wisdom or selfish wisdom. It's by God's grace. So Paul's saying, listen, I'm not here to kind of gain more and more popularity. I'm not here to try to work myself up the the Christendom ladder. I'm not going from church to church, larger budget to larger budget. I'm here operating by God's grace alone, not by human wisdom. And all of my interactions with you have been with godly sincerity and purity. And Paul's saying, listen, I, I can't give you like objective proof, but I can tell you my conscience bears witness to that. And for Paul, his conscience was an important thing for him. Something I think often in the church gets neglected today. It's talking about what our conscience is and how we use it or don't use it. Right? The conscience is like the nerve endings of our soul. When we touch something that's hot, our nerves tell us to move away because it's hurting us, because of pain. But when we do something we shouldn't, our conscience tells us to move away because of guilt. Something in us that goes, oh, that's not right. And we feel that tinge in our spirit. Whenever we violate something our hearts believe to be wrong, our conscience lets us know. It's like the alarm signal, like smoke alarm. It's there in our hearts. To say there's something off here. And Paul's saying, listen, in my conscience, I haven't acted deceptively towards you. And throughout the New Testament, you'll see he appeals to his conscience often. And so there's a way in which leaders can manipulate that, right? Because you can say, hey, you you can't prove me wrong, but in my conscience, I was doing the right thing. And so certainly people can use and manipulate that, but they're going to have to one day give an account before God. And so for Paul, he's saying, listen, I'm just letting you know, I have a clear conscience as we've acted towards you. Well, what were people accusing him of? That's what we see here in this second part in verses 12 in 15 through 18. He has a canceled trip. Now, before I jump into that, I want to actually go back up to verse 14 because he says something even more interesting here. As Paul's saying he has a clear conscience, he's saying, here's what I want you to understand. 
He says, you partially understood us, yes, but we actually, he's talking about himself, the uh, apostle, and then also Timothy who's with us. We are your reason for pride, just as you also are our reason for pride in the day of our Lord Jesus. Right, what a weird thing to say. Paul, what, what are you talking about? What does that mean? What does it mean that you are our reason for pride and we are your reason for pride in the day of Lord Jesus? Well, here's what Paul is saying, and this is fascinating to me. Paul's saying that when Jesus returns, the day of our Lord Jesus, when Jesus returns, brings his kingdom, we are then ushered into glory and into heaven. Paul's saying that in that moment, that all those whom you have done spiritually good for, there will be this joy in your heart that exists as you see them. And Paul's saying, hey, for you in Corinth, whenever Jesus returns, we will see you and you will be our reason for pride. And not only that, the people that have poured into you, when you see them, then they will be your reason for pride also. That we will see one another, those who have poured into our lives and those whom you have poured your life into. That when Jesus returns, there'll be this joy, this boasting, this pride that exists in our hearts then. And so one of the things I think that's just uh, incredibly comforting to me in that verse makes it fairly clear that in heaven we will recognize one another. Paul says, listen, when I see you, when Jesus returns, I'm going to boast. And not only will we recognize one another, but it won't just be this kind of flat relationship in which we uh, interact with every single person the exact same. Paul's saying, there will be a uniqueness when I see you. There'll be something different in my heart when I see you than when I see others. And so we see here, Paul is saying, you need to understand church in Corinth, people that think I'm doing you wrong, people that are really impressed with these super apostles, know this point. You are my pride. You are what I boast in, that when Jesus returns, there will be a joy in my heart that will rise when I see you, and it will be the same for you as well. And so Paul's trying to lay out, again, kind of this theme for the entire letter is that I've acted in godliness and purity towards you. You are actually my pride and my joy, and we should be the same for you. So that's what Paul's laying out here in 12 through 14. So what then did he do? What did he do that caused some of the issue? Well, this is what we get, now we get to in verses 15 through 18. He had a canceled trip, a canceled trip trip. Look at verse 15. So Paul then goes into, he said, because of this confidence, the confidence that you will be my pride, because of this confidence, I plan to come to you first so that you could have a second benefit and to visit you on my way to Macedonia and then come to you again from Macedonia and be helped by you on my journey to Judea. Now, when I planned this, was I have two minds? Or what I plan, do I plan in a purely human way so that I say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. So here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, listen, here's, here's why. Because you're my pride, because you're what I boast in, I wanted to come to you. I'd made a plan and I told you, hey, I'm coming to see you. So verse 15 says, because of this confidence, I plan to come to you first. And not only once, but I wanted you to have a second benefit, a second grace, a second joy, I don't know entirely what that means, but what, what it seems like it means, what most commentators believe, is that Paul's just saying, hey, I'm going to come visit you twice. I'm going to head on my way to Macedonia, stop and see you. When I get done on my way back to Judea, I'm going to stop and see you again. And so here is the second benefit that you get to be able to, to sit with, to see the Apostle Paul as we sit and we get to talk about what's happening, what the Lord is doing. So Paul had planned, I'm going to see you twice and then visit you on the way to Macedonia, and then come to you again from Macedonia and be helped by you on my journey to Judea. So what happened? Well, Paul didn't show up. Paul told them, and he promised, hey, I'm going to see you twice. 
Not just once, I'm going to see you twice. That's how much I love you. I'm going to stop and see you twice. I'm going to plan my missionary journey so that I stop in Corinth twice, and then Paul doesn't come at all. And there's a small faction within the church in Corinth that started grumbling. They said, there's that Paul promising things again and not showing up. You remember, this is what I told you about. I told you we couldn't trust him. Dude's not faithful. He said he was going to come, and he's not here. And so we're sitting here, and now there begins to be this issue that's happening that's being exacerbated because things were already rocky between this church and Paul. We'll get into more next week, or in two weeks, the relationship between the two. But Paul earlier wrote what's called a severe letter. We don't have it, but Paul refers to it as a severe and tearful letter. Another place referred to the past when he came for a painful visit. So I don't know what your relationships are like, but anytime I get a severe letter or a painful visit, it's usually a sign the relationship isn't going great. And this was Paul's relationship here with them. They were dicey between Paul and the Corinthians. And so what does he do then? He says, hey, I'm coming to see you twice. I know that we're kind of on the rocks here, and we're kind of up and down. There's been a severe letter. There's been tears. I had to leave because things were getting bad, but it looks like things are turning around. So I'm coming to see you twice. And what does he do? He doesn't show up. He changes his plans. The apostle Paul ghosts the church in Corinth. Just completely. Just they go and text him and Paul doesn't text back. They double text him. Paul still doesn't text back. I'm like, Paul, where are you at, man? And so now people begin to throw these accusations at Paul saying, look, we told you. Look at this guy. He's fickle. He told us he was going to come, but then something better came along. And so he left. He changed his plans. He was double-minded. He was absent-minded. He just either forgot about his plans or maybe something better came along. Classic Paul. He doesn't care about us, this church in Corinth. Or people said, not only are you fickle, kind of this absent-mindedness, like, oh, I just kind of forgot. But they also accuse him of being just a liar, flat out, more malevolent. Paul, you're deceptive. You're selfish. You told us yes, but when you told us yes, you knew in your mind that you weren't coming. You meant no. But you just didn't want us to think bad about you. You didn't want to have to deal with that difficult conversation. So you said, yes, yes, but in the back of your mind, you meant no, no. Now, I don't know about anyone else here, but if anyone's ever made plans with you and you've said yes, in the back of your mind, you're like, oh, there's no way I'm showing up to that. That's exactly what the church in Corinth thinks Paul did to them. Paul said yes, but he meant no. Or maybe something better came along. Or if you've made plans before, like a month ago, and then all of a sudden the, the day gets closer and closer for the things that you've made plans for. And as it gets closer and closer, you begin to think, you know what, I think I kind of feel sick today. I don't think, is there a, yeah, I don't feel very good. I don't want, I don't need to go to this that I'd planned for months. Today, today I don't feel as good. And we begin to try to think of any kind of excuse we can to back ourselves out of the commitment. Maybe everyone here is just godlier than I am, but this is something that we all deal with. And this is what the church in Corinth was accusing Paul of. Paul, you're either fickle, just being absent-minded, or you're a liar. You said yes, but you meant no. And Paul addresses both of these head on in verse 17. Look at 17. Paul says, now, when I planned this journey to come to you twice, was I of two minds? Was I absent-minded? Or what I plan, do I plan in purely human ways? And that word human is also translated as either selfish or um, deceptive in a purely selfish way, so that when I say yes, yes, and no, no, I say them at the same time. Paul's addressing both of these accusations. 
Saying, hey, am I double-minded? Am I speaking out the side of my mouth? And he jumps into it. And what's interesting to me is that as Paul then goes and addresses both of these, how would you address it? Before we even look at it, how would you address it? If someone came to you and questioned why you did something, what's our first response? Our first response is to want to explain. Let me justify. Let me defend myself. No, no, you, you just, you're upset with me because you don't understand what I was thinking when I made that decision. So let me just explain to you all the things I was thinking, and you will clearly agree with me. I don't know if you're married, but typically that, that kind of conversation doesn't end well. As we're trying to defend ourselves and go, oh, no, 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 spouse, listen, the only reason why you're upset is because you just don't understand. Let me tell you why I was right. That's our first response. We want to defend. Let me defend. Let me justify. Let me explain. And so what's interesting is Paul has these accusations against him. His first response isn't to justify himself. Now, he gets to that in chapter 2 and says, listen, here's what happened. But his first response is something different. He doesn't just explain why he chose what he did. Paul addresses the things that were against his character that were being said. And what's interesting is the way in which he answers it. Look at verse 18. This is where it gets really interesting now. He says, as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. So Paul here, in the midst of these accusations, steps back and doesn't just explain the circumstances of what's happening. Paul steps back and goes, hey, guys, listen, God is faithful. And because God is faithful and he is now working in our lives and we are preaching his message and his gospel to you, we also are faithful. And our message to you is not both yes and no, but we are a reflection of the very character of God. And so Paul, at the very first that he does in response, as he points to who God is, he doesn't defend his actions, he points to the character of his God. And he says, as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. And so he's trying to put forward that he has a clear conscience in his relationship to them. He's letting them know, yes, this is what I had planned, but that got changed. But I wasn't double-minded, and I wasn't, um, I wasn't planning this in a selfish way. He says, but look and remember who God is. And this is where Paul now points to a faithful God. And things just get so interesting. And these next four verses are some of the most packed verses in the New Testament. As Paul here explains then, why it is they can trust him is because they can trust God who is faithful. Well, how can we know that God is faithful? Paul explains in verses 19 through 22. He says, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus, Timothy, and I did not become yes and no. On the contrary, in Christ, it is always yes. For every one of God's promises is yes in him. Therefore, through him, we also say amen to the glory of God. Now, it is God who strengthens us together with you in Christ and who has anointed us. He has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a down payment. Now listen, there's, there's a ton there. We could spend literally probably five or six weeks unpacking that, but instead we've got 13 minutes and 24 seconds. So here we go. A faithful God. So Paul then turns from his circumstances with the church in Corinth, all the issues that were there, canceled plans, and he turns now to God and says, hey, let's stop for a minute and just behold God. Let's just stop and remember who God is and what our ministry looks like and the choices that he makes. And Paul makes the connection 
that the character of God affects the way that he fills his schedule, the way that he deals with his calendar. Paul's saying, hey, you, you know why you can know that I didn't just cancel or back out on my plans because something better came along? Do you know how you can know that I didn't just come and go, listen, I'm going to tell you yes, but I'm going to mean no. Do you know how you can know that? You can know that because of who God is. And God has such a grip on me that I can't act contrary to that. Paul says that the character of God, who he is, has so gripped his heart that it impacts every single detail of his life, including including how he deals with the things on his calendar. Right, so just a quick aside kind of from this passage, Paul is saying the gospel and who God is should impact every single facet of our life. Christianity and church is not just kind of this high level thing that maybe we come to to deal with like our guilt or like this major sin or some of the baggage in our life. The New Testament lays out a picture that says that when we come forward and confess that Jesus is both our Savior and our Lord, what we are confessing is that we don't get to choose what we give to Jesus. That if he is our Lord and he is our King, then he is Lord of everything. Did not mean for that to rhyme, but man, it did coming forward and saying, Jesus, here is my life, every piece of it. Well, what about like that? Okay, but yeah, but, but that just interacts with kind of some of the bigger stuff. No, what does Paul say? In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, no matter what you do, whether you eat or drink, I just love, he chooses literally like the most mundane things in the world that we do three times a day. Whether you eat or drink, do it what? Do it all for the glory of God. Everything, everything we do in submission to Christ our King, to Christ our Lord, that even the way in which Paul interacts with people that he's made commitments to, he says, listen, I am bound to reflect God's character and whether or not I show up. Now, granted, there are things that came up and the reason why he didn't come, and he explains that, but it wasn't because he was unfaithful. Paul was gripped by the character of God and his gospel, and it shaped everything. And friends, if our Christianity isn't shaping every part of our life, then we are not living a complete Christianity. Having Jesus as our Lord doesn't mean we just give him what we want. It means we give him everything. And so Paul's understanding of who God is affected his calendar. Friends, for us, does your understanding of God affect everything? Does your understanding of who God is affect and shape your marriage? How you interact with and forgive your spouse? How you love and serve your spouse? Does your understanding of who God is affect and shape your parenting? What you are called to do as an ambassador on God's behalf in your children's life? Does your understanding of who God is affect and shape how you spend money? as God has given you a steward over what he owns to be able to use for his glory? Does your understanding of who God is affect and shape the way that you plan your schedule every single week? Or do we let other things kind of crowd in as becoming the functional saviors in our life that we center around, whether it be work, goodness, whether it even be our children? There are so many people today in which we feel the burden to want to try to fill our schedules up with our children's activities that we begin to push out everything else that's spiritually good in our life. Friend, does your understanding of who God is affect and shape the way that you make and keep your commitments? As small as and mundane as that is, that every single choice we make reflects to a watching world who God is. 
And so what are you reflecting? We are mirrors in this world, whether you like it or not. If you say, I'm a follower of Jesus, when people look at you, it will say something about who your God is. So what does your life tell people about who God is and what God is like? The smallest of details, that every single part of our life is a living act of worship. I love it. That's why Paul in Romans 12 says, offer yourself as a, not, not a once a week sacrifice, not a once a month sacrifice, but offer yourself as a living sacrifice that as we go offering every single thing up to our God for his glory. So what does your life tell people about who God is and what God is like? Does your life tell people that God is stingy? Does your life tell people that God is condescending? Does your life tell people that God is selfish? Or does your life say something about the love and grace of God who doesn't stand in an ivory tower looking down at those? Not a condescending God, but actually a God who condescended, who lowered himself, who humbled himself. Does your life say something about God? Well, it does. The question is, what does it say? What are you reflecting? And so Paul understands this, and he's saying, listen, I, I can tell you in good conscience that I haven't just changed my plans because I was duplicitous, because God is faithful. And so I'm reflecting that within you. And he knows that God is faithful by looking at two ways. He says, we know that God is faithful by looking at his son, and we know that God is faithful by looking at his spirit. And this is the argument that he lays out first. He says that we know that God is faithful in our lives because of his son, because of Jesus. Look at verse 19. Paul says, yes, God is faithful. Our message to you is not yes and no. Because, why? Because the son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, did not become yes and no. So Paul's saying, listen, Jesus, the gospel that we've been proclaiming to you, Jesus isn't wavering. He's not flip-flopping on his commitments to you. He's not saying yes, but meaning no. But on the contrary, in Christ, it is always yes. Man, what a promise. That God says now in Christ, when he looks at his children, he always says yes. And I love verse 20. He goes even further. And this is one of my favorite sentences in the Bible. Verse 20. For every one of God's promises is yes in him. There's an important clarification there. Because we're not careful. We can read that and go, oh, well, God's just going to always tell me yes. Great. I'll just ask him things. Make sure to say uh, in Jesus' name at the end of it. And then he'll be forced to give me it because he said he'll always say yes. That's not what this verse is saying. Notice what God says yes to. He doesn't say yes to what we ask always. He says yes to his promises. Look at verse 20. Every one of God's promises is yes in him. And what we can be confident of is that God is saying yes both to his promises and what is best for us. And so the most loving thing God can do often is not give us what we ask for. Because if you've ever been around children, you know that to be true. They are beautiful and they are cute, but if we gave three-year-olds everything they asked for, this world would fall apart in about 17 days. There has to be some level of wisdom, someone who's walking alongside that goes, hey, listen, I, I know more than you do, and I've got to be able to tell you no for the things that I need to tell you yes for. 
And this is what Paul is saying here, that in Christ, every single one of, not what we ask for, but every single one of God's promises is yes in Christ. And so when we open up this book, anytime you find a promise from God, what that means is that that promise is yes because of Jesus Christ. And that in him, that answer is always yes. That we can have that kind of hope. That as we begin, even in Genesis, we see in Genesis 3, God promises Adam and Eve and says, hey, the sin and brokenness that's entered into this world through this serpent, there is going to come a child who's going to crush that serpent's head and your greatest enemy will be defeated once and for all. And we know that promise finds its yes in Christ. We see in Genesis 12 when God promises Abraham, Abraham, I'm calling you into a land that I will show you. And when you get there, I will bless you so that through you there will be a blessing to all of the families of the earth. And we know that that promise finds its yes in Christ, that that blessing isn't material, it's not stuff. It is salvation, a reconciled relationship with God and an eternity with him. In in 2 Samuel 7, God promises David and says, David, there is a son coming from you that will bring this eternal kingdom. And that kingdom will never end. And that kingdom will have no pain. It will have no tears. It will have no death. And he will bring with with him once and for all and forever. And that promise to David finds its yes in Christ. Or if we go to the New Testament, all the promises from Jesus that promise us joy, that promise us peace in the midst of, of sacrifice, in the midst of suffering, the promise of joy and hope and peace is found its yes in Christ and in Christ alone. So that no matter what it is we're walking through, when we look to Jesus, even sometimes and especially in tears, we know the answer we hear from God is yes. That's what Paul's trying to lay out here. And he's saying you can be so confident of the yes that I'm going to give you if we look to, the, uh, to how that promise was attained through the cross. As Jesus Christ died in our place, absorbing our punishment, like we've already talked about with communion, that Jesus died in our place, that all those in him who trust in him, who follow him, our sin is placed on his shoulders. And he dies in our place, absorbing God's wrath, taking the punishment for your sin, for my sin in our place so that we will never know it. Jesus walks through the valley of death so that those in him only walk through the shadow of the valley of death. That Jesus takes that in our place so that the night before he dies, he's in the garden of Gethsemane and you know what Jesus cries out? God, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Jesus prays, God, I know what's coming. And that cup was this image of the cup of wrath. He knew the greatest pain he was about to face was not nails, it was not a whip, and it was not a cross. The greatest pain that he was walking into was the cup. And he prayed, God, if it's possible, would this cup pass from me? But not my will, but yours be done. And how does God answer that request for the cup to pass? God says, no. You have to drink the cup in order for me to save my children. And so what we see is that we can receive Jesus' yes because he received our no. And he died in our place so that this assurance could be ours. And friends, listen, maybe you're here and you don't feel like God is saying yes. Because maybe you don't feel like God's saying anything at all. Or maybe you feel like God is telling you no. No. God, there are so many things I want in my life and consistently those dreams fall to the wayside. There's suffering that I'm walking through. How in the world could this possibly be? Yes. 
And it feels like if we hear God at all, maybe it feels like he is saying no. He's mean-spirited, giving us kind of just throwing affliction to us just to kind of play with us. But friends, that's not what God is doing. What we see here is we see the heart of a father who tells us no to some things so he can tell us yes to the best things. Right? Again, we think of parenting and we say, because of how much I love my kids, there are times that I have to say no to what they want in order to say yes to what is best. Right? My dog is a, is, a, is a ferocious four and a half pound Yorkie poo. If, if you see him, just run for your life. You don't have much of a chance. And he loves to just run around outside. And we've got those weeds, the, the things that like stick to you that are, it's like, I don't know what is on the end of them, but they not only stick to clothes, like stick to your skin somehow. Or they're like thorns, little, it's like the, the, the pre-Velcro, I don't know what it is, but it's, it's impossible to get it off of you. Like even on your fingers, on your clothes, but our dog, when he runs around, gets it in his fur. So it's not just like there on the edge of his jacket, it's like wrapped up and tangled in his fur. And so he comes inside and you see him kind of like limping. And I know exactly what he's done. Like, Ralphie, you, you went, you're an idiot, okay? Don't go to the place where you know you're going to get these. They're in the same place every time. And yet he always goes. And when he comes in, I go, okay, here's what we've got to do. I've got to grab him, I've got to hold him, and I've got to kind of slowly start pulling these things out of his fur. And you know what happens every time? He cries, he yelps, he wiggles around. I'm like, stop it. You did this to yourself, Ralphie. We're here because of you. And I'm pulling it out, and, he's, and he doesn't understand. He's a dog. A grain is a Yorkshire Terrier poodle mix, so he is incredibly intelligent. Uh, I'm kidding. He keeps going to the same place every time. He's an idiot. But... <laughs> He goes to the same place, but there is a difference in understanding. As I'm sitting there with him, pulling these things out of his fur, he's probably wondering, why are you torturing me? What are you doing? And I'm going, listen, if you ever want to walk again, you've got to go through this. I've got to try to get these out of your fur, but it's going to hurt. And God, in a much more loving way, doesn't call us an idiot, but God, in a much more loving way, brings us in and goes, listen, there are things that I've got to remove from your life, and it's going to hurt, and you may not even understand right now but I'm doing this to help. And this is what is best for you. And you can be confident that in Christ, every single time I look at you, my answer is yes, always in him. Oh, verses 21 and 22, okay. Um, so quickly, there's four things that Paul says here that are just absolutely packed in 21 and 22. We'll just go through them quickly. Paul says that in God, he strengthens us together in Christ with you. He has anointed us, he's placed his seal on us, and he's given his spirit in our hearts as a down payment. So he's strengthening us together with Christ, he's anointed us, he's sealed us, and he's given us a down payment. Those are the four things. What's he saying? He's saying, now look at what I've done in Christ as I have come and strengthened us together with you in Christ. Paul is saying that what Jesus has done is he's purchased not just individual sinners, but he is incorporating and creating this community of blood-bought sinners coming together who are forgiven. And Paul is saying, I know it feels like there's dissension between me and you in the church, but look at what Jesus has done, that God is actually in Christ strengthening us together with you. Paul is saying, listen, we are becoming, because of our union with Christ, we are being united to one another. And so I can't act divisively with you. I can't kind of pull back and go, I'm disinterested with you because we are a part of this same body. God is establishing us. He's strengthening us together. And it's one of the reasons why we take unity so seriously within the church. Jesus prayed for it in John 17, and God is creating it in Christ. 
And so we come to be able to see that God is strengthening us together. He is establishing us as a body with Christ as the head, with different gifts and personalities, but he is bringing us together. And so Paul is saying, listen, we can't have this division. We can't have this, um, this uh, conflict that's here because of what God is doing through Christ. So not only is he strengthening us together in Christ, but he's also anointed us. And that word anointed in Greek is the, the Greek word chrysos. And it's, it's similar to the word Christ, Messiah, the, the sent one. So Paul's not claiming here that he's like the second Messiah. Paul is saying, us here, saying for all of us, we've been anointed by God's spirit when we believed and we are sent to be able to carry on this mission that Jesus came. So we have been set apart by God to accomplish a specific task. This is the same thing that Jesus tells his disciples in John 20, verse 21. He looks at them after the resurrection and he says, hey, as the father has sent me, so I am sending you. You are sent just as I have been sent. Friends, to be saved by God is to be sent by God. Every single one of us. The Great Commission isn't for, quote-unquote, what we would kind of think is varsity Christians. The Great Commission is for every single person that follows Jesus. As Jesus says, go and make disciples. He is sending us. He has anointed us, given his spirit to us, not only for strength, but also as we go forward in that mission that we have been anointed. Finally, verse 22, we see also the faithfulness of God in his spirit. As Paul now turns and says, God has also put his seal on us. And these are a couple of commercial words from the first century that Paul's using, the seal and down payment. The seal is something that would be used in a letter. So somebody would send a letter, they'd have wax, they'd put wax on it, and they'd have their own seal and stamp it in the wax and send it with the person. So that when someone got the letter, they'd look at the seal and go, oh, this is from so-and-so. It authenticated and imparted ownership on the letter that was being sent. And so what Paul is saying, that each one of us who have received God's spirit have been sealed by his spirit, that there is now a mark on us, this ownership in our lives, that as we're being sent by God, we act as like living letters on his behalf. And we are letters from the king. We are ambassadors who act on the behalf of another, on the act on the behalf of the king. And he gets more into this in chapter four. So we'll hold off and dive into it later then in a few weeks. Because not only are we sealed by the spirit, but also we are given the spirit as a down payment. His spirit and our hearts as a down payment. It's a guarantee Right? I don't know if you've uh, bought a house, put a down payment on the house. What it communicates, it says, hey, bank, here's some of the money and the rest is coming. A down payment acts as a guarantee for what is still to come. Paul writes about this elsewhere in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. He says that in Christ also you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. Also, a real quick important side note, we receive the Holy Spirit, we are baptized in the Holy Spirit, we are sealed by the Spirit. It's not a point after conversion, it's the point of conversion. It's when you believed. And the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. And so God, whenever anyone follows Jesus, gives us his spirit and says, hey, this is a down payment. This is the promise of what is to come, that here's some now and the rest is coming, that we are then carried along by the spirit until that day of completion, that with his son, God is showing that he will pay for our sin. And with his spirit, God is showing that he is actually good for it that he can come through on that payment. The spirit is the guarantee of your salvation as God now says that you are signed, sealed, and delivered.
You will make it to completion and see the day of the Lord Jesus, not because you will be strong, but because you are carried. That's what Paul says in Philippians 1.6. six. says, I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of our Lord Jesus. Paul says, not you working towards it, it's God carrying you along towards it. That the great Christian assurance does not rest in the intensity of our faith, but in the object of our faith. As we look to Jesus, we know that we will make it to God because we are held by God. And so maybe you came in here this morning limping spiritually. And you go, listen, I just feel like I'm barely hanging on, if I'm hanging on at all. The confidence and hope I hope you hear this morning is that it is not up to how strong you might be, how intense your faith might be, but it is what you are looking towards and the power of his spirit as a guarantee, as a down payment for what God is going to do within you. Paul is saying, listen, the God is faithful through his spirit, so I am faithful with you. And so Paul dealt with the conflict that had arisen between him and the Corinthians by reminding them of God's character. He wanted to show them God's faithfulness by reminding him then of his faithfulness. He had not despised them. He was being strengthened together with them in Christ. He had not said yes and no because in Christ, God always says yes. And he would never leave them because God will never leave him. Even when his faith is cold, God will hold him fast. Paul wasn't going anywhere because God wasn't going anywhere. That what God had promised, Jesus had answered and the spirit had sealed. And so now we come here to see this beautiful and blessed God in three persons, this blessed and faithful Trinity. Let's pray.